Praise the Lord. Well, I'll invite you to turn your Bibles once again to Genesis chapter 1. We're teaching a series on authority, and we can't quit until your Bible just automatically falls open to that opening. The Bible tells us in the story of creation what God's plan was for man. We know that God never changes, so whatever his plan was for man in the beginning is his plan for man today. Verse 26, it says, And God said, Let us make man in our image and after our likeness. The original Hebrew on that means exact duplication of God's kind. Let us make man in our image and after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. And God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and replenish the earth, and subdue it. The word subdue means to bring it under control. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. It's an undisputable fact that God created man to have dominion here over the earth, over all the works of his hands, where it says over all of his works, the uh, Psalm 8, verse three or four, somewhere around there, says that God made man to have dominion over the works of his hands. Well, that would include all the earth, everything that was created in the Genesis account. Now, we know that that system, that plan, was corrupted by the entrance of sin. And um, Genesis chapter 3, as a matter of fact, why don't we look over at Genesis chapter 3 and see where man fell and see what the implications and the results thereof as they're listed. Genesis chapter 3, we'll start reading in verse 1. It says, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, has God said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden of God, In the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said unto the woman, You shall not surely die. For God does know that in the day you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat. And gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. Now, here where it says in uh, Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, where it says God told them uh, to have dominion over the earth, re- be fruitful and multiply, replenish the earth, and subdue it. Bring it under your control. The earth was in a perfect form. There's no weeds to grow. There's no thorns to grow. There's nothing that could hurt or harm man. There was nothing that could corrupt what God had created. And until the presence of sin, that which God created could not be corrupted. So what is he telling man to subdue? The Genesis 3 account of where man fell, I believe, gives us the the answer, at least uh, a significant part of the answer. And that is the Genesis 3 account where Satan came and took upon himself the form of a serpent is the first time that we have record of, I believe it was the first time that it happened, but it's certainly the first time that we have record of, where man, mankind, particularly the woman, 
was presented with a thought that contradicted God's word. The whole thing came about because Satan was able to plant a thought within Eve, within Eve's mind, that things were not the way God said they were. So when God said subdue the earth, the original sin was not just that they ate of the tree that they were forbidden to eat of. The first thing that went wrong is that Eve didn't subdue the wrong thought. You know, it's a it's an amazing thing. If the Genesis account was such that as soon as the, the serpent said to Eve, as God said, you shall not eat of the, uh, every tree of the garden. If she had stopped right there and said, you know, I don't want to talk to you. We'd still be in the Garden of Eden. But she began a dialogue with Satan. And that dialogue resulted in her seeing something in a different way for the first time. When she listened to the devil, and I'm, I'm not sure exactly. I've studied out the language and it really doesn't help me too much. But there's something to that where he said, God knows that when you eat of this tree that he commands you not to, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God's. There had to be some kind of temptation associated with that. I don't know what it was. I would assume that they've been in the garden long enough to know that man is the highest of God's creation and that's the reason why they have dominion over everything else that's, uh, that's every other living creature on the earth. That would include the serpent, wouldn't it? How is it that Eve considered that the serpent knew something more about God and about God's system than she did? And we face the same thing. How is it that we think the devil knows more about God and about what God will do and what God can do and what God's word says that he will do than we who the word was given to and were made in the image and likeness of God? How does somebody not made in God's image and likeness going to know more about him than us? But we fall into the same trap. It's exactly the same pattern that takes place with us. The devil will question God's word. He'll question God and the integrity of his word. And try to convince us to accept a thought that's contrary to, a, to the word of God that endures forever. That cannot change. I would submit to you that the original sin came as a result of Eve not taking every thought captive. Now, she may not have known to to do so. I don't... uh, I'm I'm careful not to read things into the Bible, or at least I try not to read things into the Bible that aren't there. But we make assumptions about things. We make assumptions that, that the devil came immediately and man fell immediately before he had a chance to... Um, reproduce and replenish the earth and so forth. We don't know that to be true. There could have been generations of people in the Garden of Eden before sin ever entered. There are just questions that we don't have answers for. But right on the other hand, I see the possibility that it could have been quick. 
because the devil is the ultimate liar. And the creation of man in the image of God was the ultimate slap in, devil, in Satan's face. I can't see him putting it off any longer than he felt like he had to. To make an accusation against God. But be that as it may, there's, a, there's just a lot of stuff we don't know. But what we do know is something happened on that day that was different. We don't know that that was the first time the devil ever talked to him. We don't know that was the first time the devil tried to Im- implant wrong thoughts into their mind or their consciousness. It's certainly possible, perhaps even probable, that it was the first time, but we don't know for sure. All we do know is it's the first time that it's recorded. Now, is it recorded for the first time because the devil was one for one? His first time was successful. Or was it recorded as such because this is the time that he was successful? Either way, the issue is the same as far as I can see. And that was Eve did not subdue the wrong thought that was brought to her mind. And it changed the way she looked at things. Whatever he said to her and whatever the implication or the the temptation was associated with it. It changed the way she saw things. It indicates to us or implies to us at least that before Satan began to talk to her, she never really had taken a good hard look at the tree. I think that's wise. I think it's wisdom not to look at the things you shouldn't be associated with. That's certainly the devil's pattern too. Gets you associated with it, gets you familiar with it so that it's an easy step to take part. But she saw something different. She saw that the tree was good. Well, God made it, so it had to be good. When God looked at the world that he created at the end of the six days, he said it was very good. That would have to include the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But she saw something, and it created a desire in her. We oftentimes look at authority from a standpoint, and, and, and I'm not criticizing this. I think it's appropriate and I think it's right. But it's just not the whole story. We see verses of Scripture like Roman, like uh, Luke ten nineteen, where Jesus told his disciples, Behold, I give unto you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the devil, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. We look at Scriptures like that, like Matthew 16, Behold, I will give unto you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. We associate authority exclusively, it seems, with trying to stop the devil. But the biggest place you're going to have opportunity to stop the devil is not in circumstances surrounding you, but in your thought life. It's in your thought life. Turn with me over to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul is talking, writing to the church about the equipment that God has given us to overcome the enemy. Now, Paul is really strong 
on the fact that we're overcomers in every respect. He's really strong on the fact that greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. John said that, but Paul said the same thing in different words. He tells us that nothing is impossible with God. He tells us over and over again in a a variety of ways that the devil is no match for the new creation. And notice what he said in uh, well we'll just start with verse 4 talking about walking in the flesh but living in the spirit he said for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds when you see the verse as it reads we have weapons that are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds would we be incorrect in associating that with authority? Or is, it, is the scripture not telling us that we have means, that which the Bible speaks of as weapons, to exercise our authority, our authority in the Lord appropriately to defeat the work of the devil? That's what it says to me. Even though the word authority is not there, the principle is. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, they're not natural, they're not earthly. But they're mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Well, if you associate that with other scriptures that we have already referred to and looked at in this series about authority. Behold, I give unto you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. Then weapons would have to fit into that, wouldn't it? If whatsoever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, then there have to be certain tools that we utilize in order to exercise that authority to bind or loose. Would there not? So I see authority in this verse. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal or earthly, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Now, If we don't keep reading, if we just get excited like a lot of Pentecostals do without any real basis in truth, we would conclude that the pulling down of strongholds is the ultimate in the defeat of the enemy. And that would be true. But where are the strongholds? If we don't go to what the Bible says about what the strongholds are, How are we going to know how to effectively utilize our authority and use the weapons that we've been given? Notice where Paul says the strongholds are. Here's how you pull down strongholds. Here's how you use those weapons effectively. Casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. I would submit to you folks that that's exactly what the devil did when he told Eve that God knew that they would become like God's. There was something, the implication is there's something he's holding out on you. He doesn't want you to know that if you eat of this tree. uh, Now all the others, they may be good for other things, but this tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that's the one that will make you like him. Well, there's a lot of logical arguments you could use to refute that. If God's trying to keep something from them to keep them from becoming like him, 
Why did he make it? Why did he put it in the garden? Why did he put it within reach? I mean, it's his system. He can do it any way that he wants to. He's the one creating. He can create what he wants to and not create what he doesn't want to. So there's a lot of logical arguments to, to refute the idea or the, the, the thought that Satan is trying to implant in Eve's mind. But the bottom line is this. That thought exalted itself against what God said. It exalted itself against what they knew their heavenly father to be. So our job to pull down strongholds, to defeat the the defensive positions of the enemy, that which holds us back and hinders us, is to cast down imaginations. And what are our imaginations? Well, imaginations are are neither good nor bad in and of themselves. Imaginations are the way that you're made and the way you were created. God created us to imagine things. Imaginations are a part of our everyday life. When we communicate to each other, with each other, there's no communication unless we imagine in line with what somebody else is saying. We've used the example before. If I say house, you think of your house. If I say dog, you think of your dog. Now, if I say dog, I might be thinking of mine, but we communicate with one another to understand that we're talking about a four-legged furry creature. Words are generated. Man is created for words to generate pictures. Those are imaginations. They're neither good nor bad. Now they can be used for either good or bad. They become bad when your imaginations are in are contrary to what God's word says. It becomes a high thing. When we believe our own thinking instead of what the word says, we've accepted the devil's influence to misuse our authority. And that's what Paul says that we've got to guard against. Now, Paul's an interesting guy, in my opinion, because his humility is without question. He doesn't exalt himself. He doesn't put himself out front to be something more than he is. Yet he doesn't back up on who he knows that he is, that he already is in Christ. He says a lot of things about his office. In one place he said, I magnify my office. Well, he's not, he never claims to be what he is, which was an apostle and a prophet. He never claims to be anything because of himself or because he's earned a place. It's always because God picked him. So there's a balancing act here. There's a balancing act between thinking in line with the word of God and imagining in line with the word of God that which God says you can do and that which he says you are and have been created to be. It would have been improper for Adam and Eve to think anything less of themselves than they are the finest of God's creation. But when they began to think something contrary to what God said about himself and about his instructions given to man that's when things got out of whack I think it's a well I know it's worked this way with me and it seems to work this way with everybody and it seems to me 
The devil wants to tell you that you can't do what the Bible says that you can do. The Bible, the, the devil wants to, to hammer home your inabilities when God's word is full of what you can do and what you're able to do through him. We don't think of those as being strongholds. But they are. Anything that says you can't do what the Bible says you can do or the, any thought that, that says you can't have what the Bible says is already yours is a stronghold. We don't think about pulling those down. We may go so far as to say, well, it's a stronghold to think what the church has taught for hundreds of years that God makes people sick to teach them something. Well, we can find the truth and, and, and uh, dispel that wrong thinking. But when it comes to what the devil says to us individually, very few people, it seems, in, in my experience at least, very few people take the time to really pull down the strongholds that are holding them back as individuals. But do you realize it's just as great a sin to think that you can't do what the Bible says you can do as it was for Eve to think that eating the tree would be something different than what God said it would be? We don't think of that, that being sin. We'd rather attack the devil in our finances. We'd rather attack the devil when it comes to healing for our bodies. But the Bible says that it's the little foxes that spoil the vine. It's the little things that we allow to creep in that create big issues that cause us to fail. So Paul said that our weapons are to be used in order to pull down the strongholds of the enemy to cast down imaginations in every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and to bring into captivity every thought, every thought, every thought to the obedience of Christ. Every thought to the obedience of Christ. Turn with me over to Romans chapter 12. Paul, in writing to the Romans, gives instruction to spirit-filled, born-again, spirit-filled believers. Beginning in verse 1, he said, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. King James says reasonable service. Most other translations translate this as spiritual worship. Jesus said, they that worship God must worship him in spirit and truth. We charismatics think about Singing and speaking in other tongues. Well, that is a spiritual activity. But worshiping in spirit has to do with presenting your body a living sacrifice. Then he goes further and he says, And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. Notice what determines whether or not you're going to operate in line with the world or contrary to the world. The operation of your mind. Now, I would dare say that most Christians focus on verse 1 a lot more than they focus on verse 2. 
Because we know the, the, the physical and fleshy things that we're not supposed to do. Don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal, don't commit adultery, and, and so forth. And most of the church, it seems to me, is attacking that in the physical realm, trying to keep themselves from doing the things that the Bible identifies as wrong. But you only do the wrong things if you think the wrong things. There are very few things that you do without thinking about doing them first. If you get right down to it, there are very few things you do without saying you're going to do it first. So Paul says not to be conformed to the world, and here's how. Be transformed into something else. We would have to assume that something else means the new creation. That which God intended us to be through the new birth. By the renewing of the mind. And notice what the result of that is. That you may prove. The word prove means to determine by experience. That you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now folks I would submit to you that God doesn't have three wills. The perfect will of God is good and acceptable. Now there are times when we're in the edge of God's will. And we might call that the good will of God rather than the perfect will of God. And there, there, were, cert, there were certainly times where that uh, terminology would apply. But I don't believe that's what Paul's talking about. I don't think Paul's saying, well, now God's got three wills. Pick which one you want. No, he's saying the renewing of the mind will put you in the perfect will of God, which is good and acceptable. Now notice verse 3. For I say through the grace given unto me, to every man that is among you, not to think, notice King James says of himself, but that's in italics. Translators added that. It would certainly tr be true and, and um, apply when it comes to thinking about yourself, but it, not, it doesn't just apply to thinking about yourself. It applies to thinking about anything. For I say through the grace of God given unto me, to every man that is among you, everyone, not just a few, not to think more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. Now, I'm sure the translators put of himself in there, added the of himself words or phrase in there because he's talking about every man being dealt the measure of faith. So it's a natural assumption to, to uh, it's natural to make the step in our thinking. He's talking about not thinking of ourselves more highly than somebody else. Well, that's certainly true. That would certainly apply. We don't want to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think in comparison with others. But what areas do we want to think more highly than we ought to think outside of other people? And remember the, the definition of high things Casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God to be anything that's contrary to what the Bible says. We've already used the example. If the Bible says you can do something, if the Bible says you're able to do something through the greater one that lives on the inside of you, if you think you can't, that's a high thing. That's thinking more highly than you ought to think. Now, we look at it just the, in just the opposite way. We look at our own 
concession or acceptance of our weaknesses and our inabilities to be humility. But the Bible says that's pride. The Bible says anything that we choose to think that's contrary to what the Bible says, even if it puts us down in our own eyes, is pride because we're choosing our own thoughts over God and his word. See, if you get a Christian nowadays that will say publicly, God is always with me, much of the church world will say, oh, that's arrogance. Well, since the Bible says God never leaves you nor forsake you, to say anything to the contrary or to think anything to the contrary is pride. It's choosing your thought above what God said. You get somebody that confesses publicly that I'm the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Christians just have a hissy fit over that. Oh, the very idea for somebody to make that claim. Nobody's perfect but Jesus. Would to make a claim to the contrary is pride. It's not humility to say I'm not righteous. It's pride to say my thoughts are, are greater than what God said. And those are strongholds, folks. You think things long enough, then they create strongholds. They create a belief system on the inside of us that we really can't do what the Bible says we can. And so we'll be hindered from doing what God said is made available to us. Paul talks a lot about authority in letters to the church, not just from a standpoint of power, but more in connection with the right use of authority. Let me show you what I mean. Turn with me over to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. First Corinthians chapter six, I'm going to start reading in verse nine. Paul says, know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Then he goes through things that identify the unrighteous. Now the unrighteous here means the unsaved. You'll see it as we go a little bit further. He's talking about the unrighteous not entering into the family of God. Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind. Most translations translate that as homosexuality. Nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. Now notice in verse 11, he said, and such were some of you. And such were some of you. But you are washed, but you are sanctified, but you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Now notice what he does not say. He does not say, those of you that have fallen in the flesh in the areas of adultery or lying or any of the other things that he mentions there, it's too bad for you, you messed up, and you can never get back. No, he's talking about the difference between those that are unsaved and those that have been made righteous by the blood of Jesus. So he's saying that they, even though they're with, they're certainly uh, have their share of faults, he deals with those in this letter. 
But he's saying that they are inheritors of the kingdom of God, which means everything that Jesus purchased for us belongs to them. But he's talking about apart from the new birth, you can't enter into the place of authority in the name of Jesus that God wants us to have, which is a part of the kingdom of God. Verse 12, all things are lawful unto me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. And what does he mean by all things? Well, all things means all things, doesn't it? Paul goes into great detail in Romans chapter 6. I'm sorry, Romans chapter 7. About the difference between the deeds of his flesh and the actions of his spirit. Or the desires of his spirit. This may be too strong for a lot of people to take. But when Paul says all things are lawful unto me. He's literally saying there's no deed in the body. That can separate me from Jesus love. Now he doesn't propose to go do anything that he wants to do. In fact his whole purpose in uh, in saying these things. Is that he refuses to allow himself to be brought under the power. That word power is the word authority of anything. Even though it might be lawful for him to do it. He will not allow himself to be brought under the power of anything. Then he uses an example of meats offered to idols. Which was a big thing in the early days of the church. In Paul's day at least. Because sacrifices would be made in these temples to foreign, foreign uh, uh, false idols, false gods. And then taken to market. And so you could be buying meat that was offered to a, an idol. And it, can, it brought condemnation to a lot of Christians. Because their conscience condemned them for what they were eating. Or what other people were eating. And how they was uh, being used and partaken of. So Paul says all things are lawful unto me. But not all things are expedient. The word expedient means helpful. All things are lawful for me. But I will not be brought into the power or authority of anything. Notice what he's saying. He's saying he's not going to allow anything to have authority over him. So his standard, his ruler... For what he will and will not do is not what's lawful or unlawful. We've been justified by the blood of Jesus. There is no law unto us. There is no law that forbids anything. But he's saying I'm not going to be brought under the power of anything. First example he uses is meats offered to idols. Meats for the belly and the belly for meats. But God shall destroy both it and them. Now, the body is not for fornication, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God has both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his own power. So he uses two examples about things being lawful, but not expedient. One is meats offered to idols and the other is sexual impurity. And he says he's not going to partake of either one because he's not going to allow himself to be brought under the authority of any other thing. We know that Paul was unmarried. But that didn't mean that Paul 
didn't have to deal with sexual temptations. Paul said that not everybody had the same gift that he had, that he preferred everybody to be unmarried that was doing the work of the Lord like he was because it was easier. You can imagine in all the situations Paul was in, it'd be tough for him to drag around a wife. Be tough on her. Be tough on him, worried about her. There is some, I won't say compelling historical evidence, but there is some historical evidence that Paul was married and his wife left him after he got saved. So Paul says he's not going to allow anything to have authority over him. I'm going to have to go back to Romans chapter 7 and show what he said here. Because if we don't tie this together, I don't think it'll come out right. Romans chapter 7. Let's start reading in verse... uh, 15, Paul said, for that which I do, I allow not. The word allow means I don't want to do. I'm not willing to do. So he's making a contrast right off the bat between the actions of his flesh, the deeds of the body, and the desires of his heart or his spirit. So he says, for, we, uh, for that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that do I not. But what I hate, that do I. That's kind of difficult for us in the English language. The interpretation as far as the English is concerned. But Paul is saying, I'm having a real struggle here. Now, Paul's not having the struggle at the time that he writes the letter. But certainly this was a struggle that he experienced in the early days of his Christian life before he found the secret to walking in victory. In other words, Paul's saying that he had just the same trouble with his flesh that you and I have with ours. That's a shock, huh? We read about Paul and we think he had everything together and that's the reason why something must be wrong with us and that's the reason why we don't live the same way. That can be a stronghold that needs to be pulled down. Paul said of his own experience, and he's talking about times past, certainly. He's saying the deeds in my body do not line up with what my heart wants to do. He's stumbling over his flesh just like you and I stumble over ours. And he said, and the things that I want to do from my heart, those are the things I can't seem to make my body do. Things that I don't want to do and the things that I hate from the inside are the things that I wind up doing. So Paul is making a clear distinction between himself, the real man on the inside, and the actions of his flesh. There's no other conclusion you can draw. If then I do that which I would not, the actions of my body are contrary to what my heart wants to do, I consent unto the law that it is good. Here's the conclusion he comes to in verse 17. Now that it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. Paul draws a conclusion that is of, of critical importance for you to draw and come to the same conclusion. And that is, everything that happens in your flesh is not you. 
Now, could this be what Paul's talking about over in 1 Corinthians 6 that we just read, where he said, all things are lawful for me, but not expedient? All things are lawful for me, but I'll not be brought under the power of any, under the authority of any other thing. Is Paul saying, if I do things that are unrighteous in nature, I know that's not me doing it from the inside. That's not my heart taking place or taking action. That'd just be the work of my flesh. Yet you can see his fight. You can see his struggle. You can see his willingness to overcome the deeds of the flesh because he said he's not going to eat meats offered to idols if he offends somebody else. He's not going to participate in sexual impurity or immorality. He explains later on in the second letter that he writes to the Corinthians. Second Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27, he said, But I keep under my body. King James says it this way, I keep under my body. Other translations, translations translate it, I keep my body under and bring it into subjection. Lest after having preached to others, I myself would be a castaway. The word castaway means approved or to be found unfit. In other words, Paul's saying, I've got to live right so I have credibility to finish the work of God. Not so that I stay saved, but so that I have credibility in ministering to others. It's hard to tell other people to live right if you're not living right yourself. So Paul makes the distinction between the man on the inside and the works on the works of the flesh to the man on the outside. Now, I know this is a hard thing for a lot of people to hear. And a lot of people, when they hear this, think that I'm saying or that Paul is saying it's okay to do the wrong thing. That's not what he's saying at all. But there's no point in you accepting the lie of the devil when you make a mistake and you stumble over your flesh. When he tells you, when the devil tells you, that that's you and there's something wrong with you, the real you, the man on the inside. Because that's not true. Unrighteous action can't make you unrighteous by nature. Unrighteous action, no deed of your flesh, is stronger than the blood of Jesus that made you righteous. Back to Paul's description of his own experience. Verse 17 again, he said, Now then it is no more I that doeth it, but sin that dwelleth in me. He's saying the actions of my, the wrong deeds of the flesh, that's not me. Because the man on the inside from my heart hates those things. Well, then what is it? It's sin that's resident in my flesh. Why is sin resident in our flesh? Because Adam and Eve fell in the Garden of Eden. We're never going to get rid of sin in our flesh. We don't have to yield to its influence. But it's always going to be there until we receive our redeemed bodies. Verse 18, for I know that in me, that is in my flesh. Notice Paul makes the distinction again. When he says in him or in me, he means he's talking about from the fleshly standpoint. He seems to be conscious that that's not the real him just as we should be. 
For I know that in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. For the will is present with me, but to perform that which is good I find not. Now where is the will of God? Where is the will or the willingness to do the right thing in Paul if it's not in his flesh? It's in his heart. Where he's been made a new creature in Christ Jesus. For the good that I would do from the inside... That's not what my flesh does. But the evil which I would not do from my heart, that's the thing I wind up doing. Sounds like Paul's just an average Christian, doesn't it? Now, if I do that which I would not, in other words, if the action of my flesh doesn't line up with what I want to do from my heart, then it's no more I, the man on the inside from your heart, it's no more I that doeth it, but sin that dwelleth in me. I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. In other words, he's saying I found something that I cannot change. I can want to do right and choose to do right and, and desire to do right from my spirit all day long, every day. But there's always going to be the presence of sin in my flesh. That's a law going to be that way till jesus comes back and we receive our redeemed bodies for verse 22 i delight in the law of god after the inward man i delight in the law of god after the inward man now folks remember he's writing this to the romans he realizes and he's teaching them and teaching us the process and there's no telling how many years he went through this process to learn these things he didn't get it overnight any more than you and I do. But he's finding out through this process that just wanting to do right from the inside is not the end of the story. He's concluded that he always wants to do right from the inside. The inward man, the new creation in Christ Jesus. He's the one that tells us if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away and behold, all things have become new. What old things passed away? Well, certainly not all the old things of the flesh. Old things of the spirit did, though. Now he's a new creature. Now he's a new creation. Now his spirit has been recreated in the image of God. And in God's image, he always wants to do right from his heart, even though he doesn't always do right in his flesh. So he's saying, I delight in the law of God after the inward man. This is one of those things that you need to think rightly on. You need to realize that because you are a new creature in Christ Jesus, you always want to do the right thing. Now, remember what God said in the Old Testament when he, was telling, when he told Samuel to go down to uh, Jesse's house and anoint the next king? Jesse, who was David's father, had seven sons. And so Samuel told him what he was there for, and he said, bring your sons in before me. And the first one was named Eliab. And boy, Eliab was a big, tall guy, big, tall, strapping, good-looking guy. Samuel said, surely this is the Lord's anointed. And the Lord said, he's not the one. He said, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. Well, if God looks on the heart and your heart always wants to do right, what does God see in you? See, if you took time, and we don't have it tonight, 
But if you took time and went through the Gospels and found out the things that Jesus said about himself, you'd find out that one of the things he said was that I always do the things that please my Father. Now, why did Jesus, why was Jesus able to say that I always do those things that please my Father? Was it because he was without sin? Was it because there was no sin in his flesh? If that's the case, then nobody will ever be able to say the same thing. But if he's saying it because he's the righteousness of God, then that's what you've been made in him. So we can say from our hearts, in truth, that we always do the things that please our Father too. Now that'll pull down some strongholds. You start making that confession. You start talking in line with that. That'll pull down a lot of things that the devil has kept you tripped up and used to trip you up for years. Years and years on end in many cases. Another thing Jesus said standing before Lazarus' tomb is he said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. Even before he starts praying, he's talking about something that he's already prayed. He said, I thank you that thou hast heard me and that you hear me always, but for the people standing by is the reason I said it. Jesus said that the Father always heard him. But doesn't the devil tell you that God doesn't always hear you? You don't even have to confess that. If you meditate on that and think that and accept it in your mind, that'll become a stronghold. That's a high thing that needs to be cast down. Because Jesus said that God would hear us just like he hears him. Is this making any sense? So Paul said, for I delight after the law of God. Here's the law that he found. I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind. The word mind there is a poor, uh, poor translation. He's talking about the inward man. And bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from, this body, from the body of this death? I thank God through Christ Jesus our Lord so that with the mind I myself serve the law of God. He's talking about the inward man, but with the flesh, the law of sin. He's saying there's only one answer for this, and that's Jesus. Now, how was Jesus the answer for him when he doesn't seem to be the answer for us? Because Paul acted on the very things that he told us to do to pull down some of these strongholds. How do we know? Because chapter 8 verse 1 starts off, there is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Paul learned how to pull down the stronghold of condemnation. He learned how to bring into captivity the wrong thoughts that the enemy was telling him, just like he tells you and me. Now, folks, whether you know it or not, this is the exercise of authority over sin. Again, don't think of sin just as wrongdoing. Don't think of sin just as lying and cheating and stealing and whatever else is on the list. It's sin to think in contrary to God's word. 
It's sin to allow Satan to develop a stronghold, a defensive position that's contrary to what the Word of God says about you. That's sin. Paul came to realize, came to understand, and came to teach us by the Holy Ghost that even in the midst of you going through the process of stumbling and falling and repenting and stumbling and falling and repenting and stumbling and falling and repenting to the 10th degree, there's no condemnation. Because God knows whether you figured it out yet or not. God knows that you're a new creation on the inside. And that from your heart, from the inside, the inward man, the real you, you always want to do the right thing because he lives there too. Even if you don't ever live up to it. See, there's so many things that we allow the devil to beat us up with. And we accept his thoughts and his influence and do some beating up on our own of ourselves. There's so many things that we look at as sin that God doesn't see as sin. Because he looks on the heart. This is hard to accept. I may be teaching over your heads. If I am, forgive me. But right on the other hand, if somebody doesn't teach over your heads, how are you ever going to grow to be more than what you are? I dare say that Paul is teaching above our heads, most all of our heads, when he told these things to the Romans. Pastor Mike, aren't you worried that people will misunderstand? Well, was Paul worried that people would misunderstand him? People made careers out of misunderstanding Paul. He tells us so. See, that's the exercise of authority. You want to stop the devil in your life? Stop him in your thought life. And by that, I don't mean just resist wrong thoughts when they come. I mean pull down those strongholds layer by layer, thought by thought, that you've allowed yourself to think that's contrary to the Word of God. If the Bible says you can, then you should think you can. You should imagine or see yourself. Remember, imaginations are pictures created by words. God's word is designed to create pictures in your thinking, in your thought life, in line with what he said you can do. See yourself doing what the Bible says you can do. See yourself being who the Bible says that you've created, been created to be. See yourself as never being condemned by the Lord ever again. Because there is no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. Yeah, but what if we mess up? God still won't condemn you. He knows there's a presence of sin in your flesh. But he's got a plan for that. If only Eve had subdued the wrong thought that the enemy tried to plan in her mind. She could have stopped the devil in his tracks. And the millennia of consequence of wrong action. Same thing's true for us.
You can stop every consequence of sickness, sin, sickness, and poverty, spiritual death, by taking your every thought captive and bringing it into obedience to Christ. Well, I've talked long enough. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it's true. Thank you for who you've made us to be. We say, Father, that we are more than conquerors through him that loved us because you said so. We say, Father, that greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world because you said so. We say, Father, that you never leave us nor forsake us because your word says so. We say that we can do all things in Christ Jesus who died for us because you said so. We say that you always hear us and answer our prayer because Jesus said you would. We say that we can do what the Bible says we can do. Satan, we serve you notice that from this point forward, we choose to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Not just renewed to healing and health and prosperity and all the things that Jesus paid for us when he went to the cross. But every thought will bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ, to the word of God. Your days of holding us back are over. The word of God says, who the son has set free is free indeed. We are free indeed. Free in every area, every respect. Totally and completely free. In Jesus' name. Hallelujah. Thank you, Father, that there's no condemnation to us. Yesterday, today, or forever. Because we are in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. Can you agree with that? Amen. Amen. Well, thank you for being with us.